Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, it turns out that dogs, birds, elephants and insects perceive the world very differently from our own. What can they see that we can't? And how does that change how we behave around them? The brilliant Ed Young will be talking to us about his new book on animal sensations in a few minutes. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And we will get to those comments later on in next week's podcast. Just a note to say thank you once again for subscribing and rating. Please let people know about the show. If there's a particular episode you think someone might like, you can share it via the app. We'd really appreciate it. All right, it's time for the week's science news and joining me is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from Science Foundation Ireland, Dr. Ruth Freeman. You're both very welcome. Shane, our first story has to do with antidepressants. Absolutely, Jonathan. This this is a, a, a well, it's an explosive study from from UCL University College London. Um, and they've done um they've done a very extensive study of studies. Now we've spoken about um, these types of studies before. This particular methodology is called an umbrella study. So they've taken in every piece of data they could on the area of um, antidepressants and the idea of chemical imbalances being the causes of depression. Um, and they have found that there's very little evidence that a chemical imbalance is what causes depression. And so they're questioning the use of antidepressants that are prescribed to, well, in Ireland, it's 10 to 12 percent of, of adults, I believe. And they're stating, and this is this is quite strong, there is no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. And so serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It's a chemical that you can have in the brain. And people have linked low levels of serotonin with depression before. And so they're given antidepressant medication to, to write that balance. So, um, so so just to be super clear, because there are people who are on medications, uh, this is new science. We should never take medical decisions based on a, a radio program. But that said, these SSRIs, a, a huge amount of antidepressants across the world are based on this concept of modulating the amount of serotonin in our body. Absolutely. And you're 100% correct to say if you are taking this medication or someone you love is, it's actually quite dangerous to stop taking it immediately. So talk to your doctor. And if you go in and talk to them about this study, uh, you, you can, you know, they, they might have a conversation with you about it. But those sorts of things are slow processes. So what the study has done and what it's found is that uh, they've looked and compared the levels of serotonin in um, in different people and the breakdowns of serotonin in blood or in brain fluids. And they discovered that there is no difference really between uh, those who have been diagnosed with depression and so-called healthy people. They've also looked at lots of studies where serotonin was artificially lowered in people and they found that it didn't induce depression. They also looked at studies uh, of effects of multiple stressful events in people's uh, lives, and they found that there are links there with with depression. And I thought the line that was very interesting was that we don't fully understand what antidepressants are doing in the brain exactly. And I suppose that is an uncomfortable reality for, for those of us in science, and particularly for those people listening that might be taking antidepressants. There has been, as you can imagine, a lot of pushback for this study. 
It is published in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry, so it's a reputable journal. But there has been a lot of pushback, particularly from the British Psychiatry uh, Society, who's, who have pushed back quite strongly. How have the medical community reacted to this sort of shocking paper in a way? Yeah, it's it's mixed. So this is a contested area. When we don't know what the mechanism is for an antidepressant, you're going to get people that think they're great because they see effects for people. And you're going to get others who are worried that if you can't explain what's going on, is it ethical to give people medication? And so there are two camps. And this is an ongoing discussion in the area of psychiatry and, and the broader mental health area. So we we watch and see, but we certainly hope that they'll start to get to the bottom of these things in due course. Yeah, I would imagine there will be more papers on this and and more research required to to really get a a firm line in it. But this is the the way medical science works. Someone comes out challenging something that we, we do or something that we understand and more research is required to be sure that we need to change path. Our second story, um, Ruth, has to do with tears and using them as a diagnostic tool. That's right, Jonathan. If if the eyes are the window to the soul, maybe tears are now the new window into looking to see what's going on in our body and maybe more particularly in our nervous system. Um, and it's sort of intuitive when you think about it, like our saliva, our blood, our urine. Uh, tears contain biological material that's coming out of our body. And what they contain, amongst other things, are little sacks of biological material called exosomes. And and these little exosomes carry proteins and genetic material. And usually they're used to transfer messages around the body, but they do also secrete in tears. And it's particularly interesting because obviously tears are connected to our eyes, which are connected to the central nervous system. So over the last couple of years, what researchers have seen is that if you look in tear fluid, we're finding exosomes that are coming from nervous system cells. And researchers have been looking at these little microscopic mailbags and looking at the messages inside them to see if they can pick up what's going on in the eye and the central nervous system. And and they've used really complex laboratory techniques to analyze these tiny amounts of fluid, but they have actually found links, biomarkers in tears that can indicate the status of things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. So it's been a really exciting new field in the last couple of years. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's very exciting, but really it's been hampered by technical difficulties. And this new research is is about overcoming those technical barriers because the tiny amounts of the sample and the type of techniques they use take hours and hours just to extract these exosomes. But new research published this week by researchers in China and Harvard have developed a new way to capture these exosomes from tears. And of course, like any good scientific method, it has a good acronym. It's called ITIRS, which stands for Incorporated Exosome Analysis via Rapid Isolation System. Um, and it's kind of a very fancy sieve. So they take the drops of tears and they put them into a device with two membranes that have nanoporous size holes. And then they shake them. So it's just like the way you sieve flour and they get all of the other material out of the tear and they left they're left behind with these exosomes and they can do this in five minutes, which is orders of magnitude faster than the other techniques in the lab. Um, And they can also recover 10 to 100 times more of this material. Wow. 
so 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 suddenly they've created a rapid way to access a very you know it's a, it's a much less I mean much simpler than a blood test where any any time you're going to break the 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 skin or do anything it, it's going to be potential source of infection so you know now they're looking at tears as a way to monitor diabetes and again to look for the early signs of these diseases of the nervous system. It might be less invasive than a blood test, but it's surely a lot more upsetting having to make someone cry um, than just uh, giving them a, a needle. Presumably you don't have to make uh, them cry. No, I, so they use a little <laughs> strip of paper at the bottom of the eye to, by you know, capillary action. It just draws the wetness out of the eye. But okay. yeah, you could have sad movies in the doctor's studio. Our third story has to do with tracking movement and Alzheimer's, Shane. Yeah, Alzheimer's disease is something that affects tens of thousands of people in in Ireland, unfortunately, and with a growing population that's due to increase. And we know that early intervention is absolutely crucial to slowing its progress. So we need ways to to notice it earlier, to diagnose it earlier. And this is what um, this study uh, has shown. It What it did was it, it worked with 600 people in a long running study published in Johns Hopkins, and it's part of the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging. As I said, they worked with 600 people. And uh, these people were wearing a wearable device, um, like, you know, one of those devices you'd have on your on your arm that measures steps and heart rate, etc. This particular one is called ActiGraph, and it looked at their, um, their activities uh, during the day. And they found that there was a difference between uh, so-called healthy people and those who had early onset of dementia or Alzheimer's. And the differences uh, were due to movement. They found that there was less activity during waking hours and in particular in uh, the afternoon for people who were um, you know, starting to show signs of Alzheimer's. Wow! And so um, this is really, really, it, it's incredible work. Uh, there are there are ethics, of course, about measuring uh, people like this, you know, when, when there's no good reason to. But it's still very, very interesting to be able to see, can you look for distinctive changes in people's activities that might be indicators of um, the beginning of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is something that can take decades to progress from its initial stages to uh, where it might kind of severely impact your life. And so the earlier that uh, medics can get in there to help people, the better. Brilliant. Um, I think using technology to spot changes in behaviour for diagnostic purposes is a very uninvasive way in some respects at the same time because you know, um, you're not going in there monitoring them. They don't have to go somewhere to report things. I think it's, um, it is the future for certain conditions. Interesting that Alzheimer's is something that you can sort of get a glimpse of just through the amount of movement and the time of movement of someone. Ruth, our final story has to do with penguins. It does. And this is an absolutely incredible study. I mean, the type of research I just love reading about. It's a, the most comprehensive study ever of the family tree of penguins, the evolution of penguins, where they came from, how they got so specialised. So it, it's a big research, big international group, uh, mostly headed up by researchers in Denmark and China. And what they did was they combined information from the genome of all living species of penguin. There's there's 18 different species with DNA from recently it's extinct species. And in fact, most penguins that we know about are actually extinct species of penguins. They looked at the fossil record. They looked at geographic data. So it's a huge, big study. 
And they also compared the genomes of penguins to over 300 other bird genomes. And what they've pieced together really is the history of the evolution of penguins, how they became so specialised for the cold marine environment, and also what might be likely to happen to them in the face of climate change. So all really interesting stuff. Um, we first thought that penguins appeared about 60 million years ago, just after the dinosaurs became extinct, or the, the ancestors of penguins, certainly. And we thought before this study that the last common ancestor of modern penguins came from, from maybe around 24 million years ago, as the world started to warm, but the Antarctic was still covered in ice. But this new analysis pushes the evolution of penguins to much later, probably to around 14 million years ago. Again, the start of another ice age when the Earth's temperature dropped maybe by about 17 degrees and CO2 got locked into the deep ocean. And of course, this would have been the selective pressure for the ancestors of penguins to adapt. Mm. Um, but then actually the modern species that we see all actually appeared only around three million years ago. So that's that aligns with the ice age that we're currently living in, the Pleistocene ice age. Um, and in fact, there was this huge radiation where their genomes adapted to, to cold marine life. Um, wow. So again, to totally new picture of where penguins came from. Very cool. Okay, so what does that um, mean for penguins' ability to adapt to future changes, for example, climate change? they actually were able to find the genes that we knew about penguins adaptations, but they were actually able to find the genes that make penguins less buoyant. So they have bigger bone density that change their eyes to so they can see in blue light underwater and they can actually the genes that are associated with shortening their forelimb to make a flipper like wing. But but interestingly, what they also found was the rate of evolution of penguins has slowed down dramatically since three million years ago. And now they're amongst the slowest evolving birds we've ever seen. In a way, they've specialised themselves into this niche. And of course, that's concerning for climate change because we are seeing the loss of ice now from their habitats. That's what they're adapted to live in. So certainly this iconic species is in trouble. Uh, we know that. And their evolutionary history is really telling us that we need to look after them if we want to have them here in the future. But um, as we've seen in the past, um, evolution only forces change when the animals aren't adapted to it. I mean, they haven't needed to change for, for quite some time because their environment has stayed very stable. So surely that's why they didn't evolve. And with new pressures, will they not start to evolve quicker again? Well, we, we know they won't be able to adapt in time. And of course, they are they are long lived. They have slow growth, slow metabolism. Mm, yeah. They have slow numbers of small numbers of chicks. So we, we, there's lots of things that factor into how fast a species evolves. Obviously, pressure, selective pressure is, is one of those things. Um, but absolutely, they, they won't be able to adapt fast enough in the course of the next hundred years. And in fact, researchers predict that we'll lose 70 percent, for example, of all emperor penguins in the next 25 years. So, so this study is is really, you know, the the wonder of how these animals have 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 adapted to this environment. I think it should motivate us all to want to protect them, so they're still there in the future. Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Thanks as always. Now, for us, our overall sensory capabilities, the scope of our sense of smell, our sight, hearing and touch, feels all-encompassing, like there's nothing more we could possibly conceive of that would change how we experience the world around us. But that's dead wrong. It's an illusion that we share with every animal and insect in the world. 
But what might we humans lack in one area of perception, another animal or insect might excel. So what are we missing out on? Well, Ed Yong is a science journalist and author of a new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. He joins us now. Uh, welcome to the program, Ed, uh, and uh, good luck with the book. I, I thought it was really, really, I love perception as an, as an idea, um, and it's something that we talk about a lot on this program. Um, so I was, I was really fascinated by all the little stories in it. But maybe the best way to start is to talk about Umwelt, um, uh, this term, and, and where it came from. Yeah, so it was popularised by a biologist named Jakob von Uxkull in the early 20th century. And while the word comes from the German for environment, um, it doesn't mean an animal's physical environment. An Umwelt is the perceptual bubble that um, each creature is trapped in. That's the specific set of sights and sounds and smells that it can perceive, but that, as you said, other creatures might not be able to. So my umwelt includes all the things I can see, the sounds I can hear. It doesn't include the uh, magnetic field of the earth, which even a songbird like a robin could can sense. It doesn't include the electric fields given off by living things that a shark or a platypus could sense. It doesn't include ultraviolet light that actually most animals that can see um, can detect. So each creature is limited in its own specific ways. Uh, every animal is only perceiving just this thin sliver of the fullness of reality. So an immense world is a tour through those other umwelten, those other sensory worlds that other animals are, are living in. I hadn't really thought about it that way before. And I guess in, in some respects, every animal inhabits sort of an alternative earth. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, we we think of uh, th this idea of going to a parallel universe is, is very much a, a trope of science fiction. But you don't actually have to do that. You can just th those universes exist all around us. Like if I'm sitting in my office right now, if my dog uh, was in here, if there was a a fly in here, a bird, uh, an elephant, improbably, I don't know how it would get in, but <laughs> let's say there is one. All of these animals would be in the same physical space and have radically different um, experiences of that space. Um, so you can absolutely go on these adventures, these grand voyages, just by thinking about the experiences of the creatures around us. One of the great examples that I came across um, not so many years ago, and you mentioned it in the book, is how bees see flowers. And maybe you might explain that a bit, and then we might talk about how uh, how that came about. Yeah, so um, th there's lots of things about flowers that bees can sense that we can't. Um, ultraviolet light, as we already mentioned, is, is one clear example. Um, if you can see ultraviolet, um, there are loads of patterns on flowers that suddenly become obvious. So a lot of them have bullseyes or arrows or like markings that make the flowers uh, the more obvious to a pollinating insect. So even something like a sunflower we think is just plain yellow actually has this ultraviolet halo in the middle of it. Um, bees can also sense the electric fields around a flower, something that we absolutely cannot detect. And I think one of the most spectacular things about this relationship between bees and flowers is the way, the, the order in which they evolved. So if you look at the colors of all the flowers in the world around us and you ask, what kind of eye would be best at making out those different colors, at distinguishing them between all the hues that are out there? 
you would get an eye that is basically identical to a bee's eye, a, a, an eye with um, color sensing cells that are most sensitive to blue, green, and ultraviolet. And so you might think that the bee has evolved an eye that can that's really good at seeing flowers. And actually, it's the other way around, because the bee came first and the flowers came after. So the truth is that flowers have evolved colors that ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And, and that means that the senses, the eyes, aren't just these passive vehicles but for soaking in information. They actively shape the world around them. You know, by seeing nature's palettes, eyes also act as paintbrushes. I've heard that description, uh, I think you used it in the book, that, um, that they, these flowers become targets for bees. And I'm wondering, is that an assumption that we make? Or is there, or is there evidence that these colours aid the direction of bees? Because I would have thought they wouldn't necessarily need that to find the centre of a flower. It's true. You're right. There's, there's a, you know, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of sensory information that can guide bees to the flowers. So, so the smell of nectar is important. As I said, the electric field around the flower turns out to be important. Something we didn't know um, even a decade ago. Um, so bees, like all animals, are multi-sensory. They'll take advantage of a lot of these cues, um, and ultraviolet colors will be part of that. Now, one line of evidence to suggest that the ultraviolet's important is that some predators like crab spiders um, are brightly ultraviolet like they they um, to our eyes they look like they blend in with flowers but to a bee's eye they would absolutely stand out they would like be blaring beacons sitting against a background of a flower so you might think okay surely the bee would be able to sense this predator and fly away and that would be true unless the ultraviolet color actually lures them in, unless it was an attractant that makes the um, the whole flower in this, with the spider on it more conspicuous to the bee. Echolocation is something you talk about as well, and it's something that absolutely fascinates me. Talk to me about um, bats and how they echolocate, because people might know some of this from school, but I think our understanding of this mechanism has changed hugely in the past number of years. Yeah, um, the basics are, um, I, I think a lot of people might have heard of. So bats release um, these high-pitched calls that we can't hear, these, these ultrasounds. And then they uh, sense the world around them by waiting for the echoes that return to them. Um, that's that's in that's you know the basics of how it works, but the details are just extraordinary. Um, you know, sound loses a lot of energy in air, and so to for the call to be able to make the outward journey from the back and return, it has to be extraordinarily loud. And bats um, are just screaming when they are making these echolocation calls. If <laughs> they were, uh, you know, at the at the frequencies we could hear, they would sound like I don't know, like rock concerts. Um, they, they're really loud and they um to you might think then that how does the bat avoid deafening itself it seems that for every call it manages to um effectively switch off its hearing it, it temporarily deafens itself whenever it makes these calls but then re re um sets its hearing back again to in order to receive the echo and that's incredible when you think about the fact that bats can do this up to 200 times a second. Um, you know, they, they produce these calls really, really fast. And sometimes they will wait until the echo returns before releasing the next call. And they can do that a few hundred times a second. The, the amount of control necessary to do this is just astonishing. So 
obviously for bats, as you mentioned, being able to call is is limited to short distances because he, the energy gets dissipated um, so much. Mm-hmm. But in water, as you t- as you mentioned in the book, um, for dolphins, it's it's a totally different game. It is a totally different game. Um, it, the, it, underwater, sonar, uh, echolocation works over much longer distances and, and dolphins seem to be able to use it to coordinate their movements, um, to coordinate their actions over the span of an entire pod. Dolphin sonar is also just astonishingly precise. Um, you know, there, there are there are examples where um, dolphins have been able to detect the differences between um, two uh, metal cylinders who vary in thickness by the uh, width of a human hair. Wow. Um, dolphins can uh, also detect, un- like buried objects, they can detect mines, and the U.S. Navy has trained them to do so uh, and using their sonar. And because of the way um, sound travels underwater, dolphin echolocation also essentially turns them into medical scanners. A dolphin can sense a human's skeleton uh, if it echolocates on a diver. It can detect the um, swim bladder in a fish that allows the fish to be buoyant. It can lightly detect d- the to tell the difference between different species based on the shape of their swim bladder. And, what? Uh, yeah, right. It, it, it's truly astonishing. But how does, I, it, how does it do that? Uh, a lot of the details, I think, are very mysterious. I can tell you, you know, scientists have worked at the physics of it, but the, the, the question at the heart of all of the sensory stuff is what is the experience like to the animal? Mm. Um, and, and often the question, the answer is, we, we just don't know. But we can see, like, what animals are capable of. Like, you know, with dolphins, um, a dolphin can echolocate on an object and then recognize that object just through visuals. Like, even if you show an image of the object on a screen, a dolphin can can match up what the, the shape that it sends through echolocation with what it's seeing with its eyes. And and that's what? astonishing when you think of the right, right. And it's astonishing when you think of the fact that echolocation is just sound. You know, if I was listening to a saxophone playing, right, there's no way I'd be able to tell you the the shape of the instrument that made that noise just by listening to it. And yet, a dolphin is using sound to create a three dimensional representation of an object in its environment that it can then match up to other senses like vision. And I think that really is extraordinary. And I suppose I'm still sort of stuck on the idea that it can see skeleton and swim bladders within a specific fish and recognize the fish based on the swim bladder. But I presume that's because um, different parts of our bodies are different densities and the sand travels through and, and back from them at different at different speeds, I guess. Um, right, it's because sound is sound gets um, sound gets bounced back when you have changes um, in density, right? So um, our, our flesh is is basically water, but once you hit like air spaces or once you hit like m- more solid objects like bone, then you're going to get bounce back. Um, so you know our lungs are going to be perceptible to a dolphin that's hmm. echolocating. Our skeleton will be too. You know, if you if you're a war veteran, if you have shrapnel in you, the dolphin can probably sense that. If if you're a pregnant woman and you've got a fetus in you dolphin can probably sense that too like it, it really it really does have like medical scanner properties um but it's just a it's just an animal dolphins would be the best way to do a pregnancy test in my particular opinion <laughs> um I, I presume this is all done from uh, research literally because dolphins are um are so easily uh, trained 
and are such intelligent animals. I presume um, this is done by literally showing them different stimuli and and, and, and seeing their responses. Yeah. Um, so, right. So, <laughs> well, dolphins are very intelligent and they are trainable, but they are also, because they're intelligent, they're also kind of willful, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to work with dolphins. And uh, a lot of this research actually was funded by the US Navy, who were trying to um, build better military sonar yeah. um, by studying what the dolphins are capable of. And yeah, there's um, there's a long history of, of this research. I think there are a lot of unknowns too. Um, you know, so some of what I've told you um, is based on our understanding of what dolphins should be capable of. You know, the, the um, there are experiments about the fish swim bladders. There are experiments about um, you know the the, the different densities. Uh, is a dolphin capable of sensing shrapnel in a, a veteran? Like, I actually don't know that. Like, it should be able to, based on what we know <laughs> about how its sonar works. But it's very hard to do experiments, even with with animals with animals like this. Talk to me um, finally about uh, cephalopods, um, uh, squids, and octopuses, and uh, and others making up part of this group. They have a different way of sensing touch and pain, isn't that right? Depending on the species. Yeah, um, I, and I think this is really interesting because we often think of pain as this like yes or no thing, right? There are a lot of debates about can this animal feel pain or can that animal feel pain? And often people like either think they all feel pain in the same way as us or none of them feel pain in the same way as us. And there's, there is very little agnosticism in the middle. But cephalopods show that there is actually a lot of variety here. So if you injure a squid, like if a squid um, loses the tip of an arm, which often happens in nature, um, it turns out that it it, it doesn't seem to have a sense of which part of its body is injured. It's like its whole body becomes hypersensitive. You know, it's as if I stub my toe and suddenly like my elbow becomes sore or my like my shoulder flinches at the touch. And that might just be because um, squid arms are res- relatively short. Like a squid can't examine every part of its body. And so it might not actually be useful to the animal to know like where it's injured. It might just be um, that for a squid, the best thing to know is an injury has occurred. I should act as if like I am just generally in danger. Mm. Um, that's not true for an octopus, which is much longer and more dexterous arms. You know, an octopus can even reach inside itself to inspect parts of its own body. So an octopus absolutely does know where it's been injured. If, if an octopus loses the tip of one of its arms, it will cradle and groom that arm, much like, you know, I would if I burnt one of my fingers. So even here within this one group of um, animals that are closely related to each other, there's a lot of differences in their experience of pain. I, I do think that they feel something that is uh, uh, very much like what we experience, um, what we would call pain. But I think it's going to manifest in very different ways, depending on the the evolutionary history and the needs of these creatures. Do you think that um, by looking at how these animals explore the world, sometimes you are perhaps a bit guilty of thinking that they are very much like us and, and having that misconception that, w- that they experience the world as we do. Do you think it stops us fully understanding the nature of animals that are not human? Yeah, I, I think it hampers us in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I think that some of the mistakes we make, you know, are, are very simple. Um, you know, we we think of 
active eyes as being equal to active intelligence because we look around, right? We have eyes that face forward and we can only see the half of the world that's in front of us. So we look around and we think of that exploration as being um, the sign of an active mind. But a lot of animals don't need to do that. You know, a cow or a duck doesn't need to look around to see things to the sides or even behind it. And so, you know, we, we, may, we, we have these assumptions based on our senses that are often wrong. Sometimes that does harm to other animals. Um, you know, I have a dog. A lot of dog owners, I think, pull their dogs along on walks. You know, they like there's, there's a lot of people who think who see their dogs sniffing and think, why are you spending so much time sniffing this thing? We need to get going. You need to exercise. But dogs live in a world dominated by smell. Like if you pull them away from, uh, constantly pull them away from attempts at sniffing, you're denying them a really important part of their doghood. And there are studies showing that dogs are more optimistic, that they're happier, that they're less anxious if they're allowed and encouraged to sniff. And then there are ways in which um, we do even more harm to the animals around us. Um, there are um, the last chapter of the book is about sensory pollution. It's about how we flooded the dark with light and the quiet with noise mm. in ways that harm the animals around us. That um, uh, that push pollinating insects away from flowers. That send turtle hatchlings up a up a beach um, or onto a road instead of into the sea. The, the, there are loads of examples like this, and and I think that. This is a case of us forcing animals to live in our umbelt rather than recognizing the need to respect their sensory world. The book is filled with lots of fascinating facts. And like almost everything written by Ed Young, it is a, an absolutely brilliant read. It's called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Ed, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. He's such a brilliant writer, Ed. And um, if you haven't had a chance to read his writings in The Atlantic, check that out. But um, I do encourage you to read through the book. If you don't know much about perception, one of my pet subjects, um, it is definitely worth a look. All right. Um, we got uh, a few texts in from last week. Uh, we were talking about squirrel contraception. And uh, Jessamine Fairfield was telling us a story that um, the grey squirrel is, is really taking over and trampling habitats and researchers have found a way to reduce that spread by introducing harmless um, contraception that would um, mean that the squirrels couldn't procreate but wouldn't necessarily die or be harmed in any other way. Someone says, what about other animals who eat those squirrels? Um, I guess, do squirrels have a huge amount of predators in um, in, in the areas we're talking about? I mean... What are we talking? Maybe eagles and, and hawks? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. I must find out. Um, uh, make a mental note, Aiden, that we, we need to check that out. Uh, what about animals who eat those squirrels? I don't think the contraception that would work on a, on a squirrel would work on a... I mean, do foxes eat squirrels? I need to do some research. I shouldn't have even en entered this discussion before I figured out what's... Do you know what? Let's just hang on there. What animals... Eat squirrels. Okay, so f foxes and cats and dogs and badgers and polecats and weasels and mink. This is actually a much more valid question than I had first thought. So there's quite a few um, animals in a domestic or in a, in a natural setting that would predate these squirrels. 
I, 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 I got the feeling, by the way, Justin was describing the mechanism that it's not something that is easily passed on to somebody else. But if the squirrels eat it and they become infertile, how does that affect other mammals that predate on them? Good question. Uh, another says, um, we were talking about the dream machine, and this is a, a device that um, neuroscientists and other artists created where you can lie down and have a light shone in your eyes and you trip balls, apparently. Um, it's called the Dream Machine and you can go see it in Belfast as part of the Northern Ireland Science Festival, nisciencefestival.com. Um, Mikey and Nay says, about 10 years ago at Burning Man Festival in Nevada, there was an experience tent which had a pair of sunglasses with LED lights on stuck in them and they were covered in duct tape. I put them on, closed my eyes and the LED switched on and off at non-sequential timing. I had crazy images of people walking towards me, buildings. It was freaky and amazing. That's exactly the same um, concept, I guess. Uh, thanks for that, Mikey. So Bernie Man ahead of the curve in terms of experiential tripping. No surprise there. And then we got um, loads of comments on the, the piece we did on the James Webb telescope um, where we spoke to an Irish researcher from DIAS about his work that eventually led to uh, Irish research getting hours and hours and hours on this expensive telescope, which is fantastic news for Irish astronomical research. Brian Rogers says, shout out for ESA and CSA ASC here too. The European Space Agency web is a joint mission of all three agencies with Irish participation enabled by our membership of European Space Agency and funded by the Irish government, uh, the Department of Enterprise and Enterprise Ireland. Uh, Sophie says, love this interview. I had tears in my eyes listening to the discussion. The magnitude of this research is truly awe-inspiring and has me questioning everything about life, the universe and what it all means. Stunning. Thank you so much. Well, that's a fantastic uh, response, Sophie. That's exactly what we aim for in every interview. We don't always necessarily achieve it, though. And Kieran says, while this is a fantastic achievement, what practical near future benefits does this bring humanity? Oh, Kieran, do we have to do that? I mean, look, not to go back to the same old example, but we learned loads um, from going to the moon, but we also developed a whole load of new technologies. And the, the technologies that we, we have developed for robotics and for communications to get to Mars and to, you know, build this telescope, material science, so much spin-off science happens. But understanding the greatest questions of human experience, where did we come from? Where did everything begin? And how did that happen? I mean, that's what being a human is about. That's how we separate ourselves from the animals. Our drive to curiosity created the first tools from stone that began a journey where we dominated this planet and eventually destroyed it, I suppose. Actually, maybe we should have just put down the first stone and stayed in the trees or uh, scuffling for food as, as uh, a shrew 66 million years ago. Um, so I don't know. I don't know, Kieran. if you're going to say spend all the money on, on hospitals, I believe research shows that, that that isn't the answer. We can have both. We can also have near future benefits from some things and we can also just do things for the joy of exploration would be my take. I know it's not a particularly unique one. That's it from us in this week's Future Proof. Thanks to um, Aidan McKelvey, Steve Daunt, uh, Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.